0: startup nation we tell you all the time that no one does anything great on their own that includes starting a business or a nonprofit, or even becoming a thought leader or an influencer my point is that you need a team to do it successfully and responsibly and that is why you should contact dr and associates danielle and her team provide branding solutions along with digital and social media marketing that provide tangible results you are looking for no matter if you're a fortune 500 company or an author looking to make an impact, DR Associates needs to be part of your team. They are one of the few firms whose leadership has been recognized by Google, which is proof of concept that they are very good at what they do. Contact DR Associates today to grow your online presence. The number is 615-933-3681, or you can visit their website at drandassociates.com. Also, make sure you follow their Facebook page as well, D.R. and Associates, providing real clients with real results. This week on The Startup Life. And I think a, a big thing for
1: the minority community is that oftentimes we don't want to give up ownership, right? Because we have because a lot of historical context. And so it's very uncomfortable the same way that debt is uncomfortable to us. And in private equity, it's all about debt. It's all about leverage.
0: All right, Startup Nation. So let's take flight with Henri-Pierre Jacques, co-founder and managing partner of Harlem Capital Partners. The Startup Life. Begins now. 7654321. You'll never have the sacred stone. Oh, this new crazy mother. Startup Life is brought to you by Target. No matter if it's household items to make your home more aesthetically pleasing or a 65-inch TV to complete that man cave, Target is the go-to place for high-quality products at an affordable price. Start your Target journey with a link in our show notes. Target. Expect more. Pay less. All right, Startup so nation. So I hope you're ready to receive some value today. We got a big-time guest in the building today. We have Henri-Pierre Jacques of Harlem Capital. What's going on, boss? How's it going? Uh, it's going just fine. Are you ready to pour some knowledge in the Startup Nation today? <laughs> I am. All right, cool. Cool deal. So first things first, man. Let's start with this. Tell us about your path of entrepreneurship and how you got to this point.
1: Yeah, so I'm a first-generation Haitian American, originally from Detroit, Michigan, the Tois, and... I went to Northwestern University in Chicago for the economic and political science. I mean, I realized pretty early in my life that I like math. I like finance. So when I was in college, I did a couple of finance internships at Goldman Sachs and Bank of America. After school, went to Bank of America full time to do investment banking, uh, which was a phenomenal experience. Obviously, if anybody knows about investment banking, it's a lot of a lot of work, 100, 100 plus hour weeks. but really kind of like trained me from a hard work perspective, gave me the basic fundamentals of understanding finance and, and modeling and how do you value a business, which is just very important to to being an investor. Knew I wanted to transition to private equity. So I joined ICB Partners, which is a one of the few black-owned private equity firms in the US based here in New York, middle market firm, over a billion dollars of, of assets under management. Had a great experience there. It was the first time I was working for black people. I mean, I've, I've been pretty used to being in predominantly white institutions my entire life. So it's not really an issue, but it was a really big mind shift for me and was a big reason that we were empowered to even start Harlem Capital. So my, my cube mate at ICB Partners is my business, my business partner for Harlem Capital. So that was a big reason. And we started that while we were there and while we were working, we were taking a lot of our learnings to build out our angel syndicate that Harlem Capital was. Uh, and then both of us went to Harvard Business School. We were roommates while we were in school. And when we got to school, we decided that instead of interning and interviewing for other firms, that we felt like we were pretty good at what we were doing. And we wanted to, to do our own thing and raise, raise a fund uh, and do this full time after school. And so last summer, instead of interning, we, we launched our, our fund raising process. And we raised a couple of millions of dollars uh, over the past year. We both graduated Nice. Uh, a little over a month ago, and now we're now we're in New York working on this full time, and so feel feel pretty blessed to be to be doing our dream.
0: Awesome stuff! Thank you for sharing that. Let's go back for a little bit, man. Tell me a little bit about your parents, man. Yeah, so my dad was born in Haiti,
1: came to the states when he was a teenager, moved to Queens, New York. So I, I used to go to Queens all the time every summer to visit my grandparents. My mom, uh, she was she was born in Detroit, Michigan, which is why we ended up moving back to Detroit to so my mom's parents help to help take care of me. When I was a kid, both my parents were doctors. A lot of Haitian men are doctors. And so my dad in particular wanted wanted me to be a doctor. My mom had a little bit more business on the side as well as being a, a doctor. And that's kind of, she helped train me and teach me about like budgeting and all these little things as a kid, the small stuff. Like we used to play uh, cash flow, which is basically monopolies for adults. It's, it's right. the game written by Kobiaki, who wrote Rich Dad, Poor Dad. So all those little things you don't really realize But as i got older i began to realize that oh like most moms aren't doing this for their for their children and my mom used to tell me stories because i started looking at stocks when i was in middle school because my mom if i if i did my chores she would give me 25 dollars, but i had to invest in stocks mm. right and so i used to go over i used to go over to kids houses like when i was 12 and be like oh like what stocks are you investing in and then their parents would look at me like i was crazy <laughs> I had no idea, but it was like that. The stuff. So your parents, just play; they do play a dramatic part of your life if you don't realize it. But later on in life, you kind of realize that those little things have definitely led to my passion and my love for, for what finance is.
0: Got you. Thank you for sharing that. And it's time to mention the reason I wanted to ask that question, because many times on our path to entrepreneurship, our parents play a pivotal role, whether we realize it or not. So, Honoré, I appreciate you sharing that story, man.
1: Yeah, no, you got to. It's one of my favorite books is uh, Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. So the sooner you realize that you're successful, not because of you, but because of others, then the smarter you are.
0: Gotcha. For sure. For sure. Thank you for sharing that. So before we dive into it, man, so I have a lot of people in Startup Nation. They don't know nothing about the VC world, about the venture capital world, or anything about that. So kind of, you know, uh, in layman's terms, kind of explain, you know, how a startup – would go from, you know, starting up their company to, you know, talking to a venture capital firm and what those conversations would
1: like. Yes. I mean, venture capital is, is basically investors giving you some amount of money to take minority ownerships in your business. Typically, any given round, once you get to a true VC fund round, you're going to give up 20 to 25 percent of your business every round. And so you kind of have to understand. And I think a, a big thing for the minority community is that oftentimes we don't want to give up ownership, right? Because we because of a lot of historical context and so it's very uncomfortable the same way that debt is uncomfortable to us and, and, and private equity, it's all about debt. It's all about leverage. And so as people of color, I've always encouraged people, how do you get comfortable leveraging debt? How do you get comfortable giving up equity? Because this is the way you scale your business, right? And taking out taking out small business loans obviously is is fine. But that doesn't, that doesn't provide you with enough capital or resources to get your business, you know, from going from a couple hundred thousand to a hundred million of revenue. And so I think that, that's the first thing is like, what is venture capital? Okay. Now that you understand that, well, if in venture capital, you know, they always talk about the unicorn, which is a billion dollar valuation plus. Mm-hmm. these these investors are looking for businesses that can get to 50 to a $100 million of revenue within five to seven years, right? On I would say on average, that's what most people are modeling out. Obviously, rarely happens, right. but they have to believe that you have a chance, right? And so I think one thing that is a challenge is people don't understand there's only so many industries and things that allow you to scale that quickly.
0: Okay. I think
1: a big problem problem today is that people early businesses does not mean early stage venture, right? And so even even if you're a new business, people like saying I'm a startup because it's kind of, you know, and that's fine. They they truly are all startups, but all startups are not venture backable startups. Fair enough. Right. And so, so you have to think about, Hey, is my business a business that can get to 50 million of revenue in five to seven years? Am I a founder that can get my business to 50 to hundred million dollars revenue? Am I in an industry that enables me because you can't, you know, some 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 people can create new industries like Uber or Airbnb, but that's pretty rare. Probably say probably ninety plus percent of businesses are in existing industries and trying to disrupt it. So that's where majority of people will fall. So are you in an industry that's big enough that allows you to scale to hundred million of revenue in five years, right? And typically those industries have involved using software or being in healthcare or being in the real estate industry, etc. You can kind of look up online. Where most of the venture capital dollars are going, right? Um, and so I think that's one thing that oftentimes I'm emailing people like, hey, like this isn't I can't invest in you. This isn't a VC backable. You know, it may be a a publishing company, or we've seen people who have agencies, or you know, people reach out and like, hey, I've got you know one or two nursery homes that I'm looking to expand. But that's just not that's not it can be done because the the, the, iron, the irony is that venture capital used to purely be tech. Right, but now you've got companies like Casper, which is a mattress company. Right, you got companies like like WeWork, which essentially is just a real estate leasing company that are all VC backed. So the, the the VC has definitely broadened from what it used to be, right. but there still is a majority of VC dollars are still going to a very few limited industries that enable you to use tech to scale really quickly.
0: Right, because that, those are the. I think
1: I think the be- yeah I think the better that founders understand hey this is what they're looking for then it's like let me not waste my time trying to be VC backable or you know if you really want to be in the VC industry then you got to choose a business that most likely would be able to get backed by VC.
0: Gotcha you. thank you for sharing that and that kind of brings me to you know something that I kind of read about you in my prep for the show because like you know I know you make it a point to look for minority startups to invest in but you know, you don't go the traditional route. like a lot of times VC like you know, I kind of go with my gut or something like that. But you really do like go with looking at the data and stuff and, and stuff like that, man. So I guess I'm wondering, what is the HCP model, Harlem Capital Partners model, for when they're looking for those uh, VC backable startups? Yes, I mean we we
1: invest in seed and Series A, which is traditionally the first and second institutional rounds of a startup. Now, there's definitely differences, right? You've got West Coast seed versus East Coast seed. So West Coast seed, you could do kind of free revenue. East Coast seed, because you have a lot of people on the East Coast who are much more traditional finance people, they typically will not do seed rounds without some sort of revenue or product market fit. And then the next level is you've got black seed, right? So as a person of color, you'll very rarely find a person of color who can raise millions of dollars with an idea on a napkin. Right. That's, that's almost a non-starter because of just the institutional barriers we have. More likely what you'll see is that, okay, well, most people of color don't have that quarter million to half a million family friends around that enables you to really scale the business to get to the seed. So they're usually going to be in business longer. So I would say, you know, a a typical white male seed round, the business has probably been around for less than a year. Right. Person of color, you're talking two to three years to get to the same point and partially it's because a lot of those businesses have to generate revenue so a lot of people of color when they get to the seed they have more revenue than their peers because they had to generate revenue because they couldn't raise the capital from their family and friends to sustain the business right right now so like usually on a on a risk adjusted basis the business is better off because it's older it has more customers and it has more revenue for the same amount of capital being raised in the same valuation which is kind of our thesis is that these businesses are better positioned now to be on the flip side to kind of be the, the antagonist is that a lot of people also say if you're trying to generate revenue early, you're not solving the right problem. Right. So there is an issue where if you're focused on, hey, I can't raise a family friends round, so I need to raise revenue, then you're you're doing things in the business that is about getting revenue and leading to revenue quickly doesn't always mean you'll scale faster, right? Yeah. Because you're charging you're charging customers earlier, you're not allowing them to test your platform versus if if you go the Facebook route, it's like give it away for free, spend millions of dollars on the back office, and then we'll figure out how to get money later on. Same for Google, etc. And so there is this two-sided horse of, you know, oftentimes people say, "Hey, I've been in business for three, four years. I'm raising my seed round. I've got a half million dollars of revenue, which is more than we would see for most seed rounds." But at the same time, we're like, "Hey, you've already been in business for four years, and even though this is your seed round, you're still only doing a half million within four years, right?" And so there, there's this balance of having revenue at the seed a certain amount, but at the same time proving to people, Hey, can I scale fast enough? Cause you know, there, there's also fatigue. Like if you've been a founder and you've been doing this for four years, and you're adjusting your seed round. I mean, from seed to exit it's typically going to be anywhere from seven to 14 years. Okay. Right. So you're talking like you're going to be 12 years, seven plus four, or 11 years to whatever, 18 years. That's a long time that a lot of people can't survive, which is fine because 60% of, founders are not going to be leading their companies anyway after after six years. That's just the nature of venture capital because right. you, you running a, a million dollar business is not the same as you running a billion dollar business. Makes sense. Makes right. Sense. So I think that, that's, that's kind of like the the way we look at things and we understand there's dynamics to what coast you're on and who you are as a person of color for the round. And these are all things we're thinking about and very aware of. Gotcha.
0: Thank you for sharing that. And a reason I appreciate that answer. is because a lot of times there are certain industries, whether it be like trying to get government contracts or even the VC community, just a lot of stuff that a lot of people, especially people who look like you and me, Henri, that just don't know, right? So I appreciate you sharing all that value you just shared with us for sure. So let me ask you this, man, because, you know, I'm looking on the website, Harlem Capital, uh, once again, Starter Nation, the link is in the show notes to check out that website. I'm looking at it, man, you've gotten a few awards in the past couple of years. You got Forbes 30 under 30, Inc. 30 under 30, Ebony uh, Power 100, man. Like, what do those accolades mean to you, man?
1: Yeah, I mean, they weren't – they weren't like, we weren't going for them. But, for sure. obviously, human human nature is you, you like to be awarded things. So, obviously, it's an honor to get them. Right. I think, you know, what it means is – is that one, we're going to rooms where there's other people doing successful things, right? And so it was really cool. We got to, we got to ring the NASDAQ bell when we got for 30 under 30 and we got to meet some of the other people. And now, you know, we have a Slack channel. We have a Facebook group. We, we're going to the 30 under 30 conference in Detroit, which is where I'm from. I'm going to be speaking. So it's super cool to be speaking at the first 30 under 30 conference in my city. But it's like we're in the rooms where other people who are doing successful things in their industries are going to be. Right, the Ebony Power 100 was specifically for people of color, and so being in the rooms with some like Netflix celebrities and Andrew Gillum was there and Chris Tucker was there. That like that that's really what it's about, right? Is having access and being at the table, right? So the awards one puts you in rooms with people who are at the table, and two, the reality is as a person of color, like you got to do two x more, so you got to have. More check boxes, right? And so you can be like, oh, I'm smart, whatever. Like, and people say, you know, I went to Harvard Business School, which obviously is a great accomplishment, but like, you still got to, you still got to get more checks, right? You still got to get more things because people will still create doubts. And I think it just it, it enables one a confidence for me to be validated by so many people, but then two it provides a, a confidence for others. Like, oh, like if I thought he maybe got into Harvard Business School because of affirmative action. Like, did he, did he get a firmer action for, for, for Forbes, for Ebony, and for Inc? Right. Right. So I think it just begins to, like, take away that stuff and, and get you to an equal playing field, which, which is unfortunate. But it's like you, you just have to do so much more to even just remove all of those, like, doubts from people's mind. And when you're trying to ask people for millions of dollars, and it's no different for a founder, right? Like, what, what about your past as a founder makes you the right person for this market opportunity, right? Is it because you went to a certain school, you worked in a certain industry, you came from a certain community, like, and, you know, what it doesn't have to be a, a award, but it's like, there has to be something on your resume that provides me comfort that you're going to be able to, you know, handle my money in, in, as a steward.
0: For sure. Thank you for sharing that. Quick follow-up question, man, because, you know, you talked about something that's near and dear to, you know, our community's heart and stuff like that when it comes to having to be two times, three times, maybe four times better than people who don't look like us, those counterparts. So, when somebody who doesn't look like us say things like, "You know, I have my struggles, I have my things that I have to work through," what do you say to people like that?
1: I say that's true. Like every, everybody, everybody has things that they're going through. It's you know, and you can't you can't judge them for that. And there's different things. And you know, I've been pretty blessed to be around a number of really rich people, and they have a lot of issues too. Right? Nothing's perfect, and a lot of people are spoken by it, whether it be j cole saying well you know when he moved it, 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 it was terrible it was awful and he went to move back to the hood right so it's not the grass isn't always being on the other side obviously money helps and one of my favorite quotes by queen latifa is money can't buy you happiness but it can buy you everything else right. right so it does make your life easier but i think as you begin to if you're if you're judging i don't worry about other people you can't think about that you can only focus on your situation and your community and build them but everybody has has problems and, and there's valid you know, for me, like I'm one, of, I'm very blessed to have been a upper middle class African-American. And so for a lot of people, and I struggled with it, you know, living outside of Detroit was like, I had a lot of family who still lived in the hood in Detroit. And I always felt like, why, you know, why am I the one who's in the suburbs? Right. But then it's like, even if my family who lived in Detroit on my mom's side, where I'm like, well, my dad's got family who lives in Haiti. Right. Who's got a a, a 50 square foot shack in the heat. So why are you lucky to be living in the hood in Detroit? Right. So there's always, there's always somebody worse off than you. And so whether you, you know, you can complain about the person in the burbs, well, you still live in America. You still aren't an immigrant getting sent back in detention centers. Right. Right. So like we're we're all, we're all blessed to even be in this country. And obviously that doesn't stop us from wanting to be better and get better at ourselves. But I think that you, you begin to compare yourself and make yourself feel better. Or you know, try to push down others because they're in better situations, like that's not going to change anything, and if you really do some self reflection you're you're not in the worst position that you can be in either, right and I think, and there are always people who come from your position who who can get to that, and obviously i I don't believe in the American dream. it's not just about hard work to get to where you are, but I think there is there is value to having that hope of like how did Oprah become the richest African American woman in this country? moving from Southside Chicago, being sexually abused by her uncle for many years, right, and overcoming that. It's like there are stories that provide the hope. Obviously, it's not going to happen for the majority of people, but I look to those stories and the Reginald Lewis's of the world versus, like, looking to to the negatives because the negatives aren't going to change anything, and people aren't going to have sympathy for you. People just don't generally care, (laughs) and they're not going to care because you complain about your
0: situation. Got you. Thank you for sharing that, Henri. I appreciate that. Startup Nation, what I get from that answer is there's like, it's almost kind of like the Mamba mentality in the sense, like just focus on your lane, focus on what you have to do. And you really can, you know, make what you want, whether it be your business, follow your dreams or anything like that. So, Henri, I appreciate that answer, man. Let me ask you this, man, because there was a Barron's article that was released a few weeks back, a few months back, actually, that suggests that, man, that we may be in the middle of a venture capital bubble, if you will. What do you say to that? Yeah, I mean
1: valuations are high across all asset classes. Mm-hmm. I mean, it doesn't matter if it's venture capital, private equity, real estate, the stock market's at an all-time high. So I think in general everything is at an all-time high. So there's going to be a, bu- a bubble across most industries now. I don't think it's going to be anywhere as bad as the 2008 recession. Um, obviously, that was one of the, the worst that's ever happened since the Great Depression. Because, if, you know, if the tech companies, the larger tech companies are fine, right? Like Google, Facebook, Netflix, these guys aren't going away. It's going to be some of the other companies that just don't really impact the, the U.S. as much, right? If some random unicorn, all of a sudden, they realize, if it's like uh, Thrive, the blood testing company, right? They raise like a billion four. So, like if a blood test company goes away, is that going to really impact the economy as much as if a Google went away? No, Right. Um, and so and, and even if a Google went away, like that the biggest impact would be the loss of jobs. Mm-hmm. but it's very different from like a credit crisis on the real estate side or a banking crisis where people literally there was like you couldn't take cash out of the bank to do anything. That's a very different effect from like, hey, I can't use my app, but obviously the, the loss of jobs will impact the economy and there'll be some sort of recession but I just think the magnitude is not is not going to be the same. And it'll be more like the 2001 Nasdaq bubble crisis, and which was a much faster bump back in, in the uh, in the process versus the 2008 crisis, like many years to recover.
0: Gotcha. Thank you for sharing that. Last question before we go to break, man, because I know you just you know recently graduated from Harvard Business School. Congrats! So, I Thank wanna you. know, no worries. Uh, so, I want to know, you know other ways that you engage in professional development. Are you reading books, listening to podcasts? What, what's professional development you on, Ray? Yeah, well, I, mean, I didn't. I didn't read many books the past few
1: years because I had a uh, hundreds of cases I had to read <laughs> in class, which was, which was great. I mean, generally, like I have ADD, so I don't like reading books generally because okay. I just I can't sit in a room and just read a book. and My brain will go crazy. Gotcha. I'm also a, a massive extrovert, so I, I like to be around people all the time. Okay, so for me, like I read a ton of articles, like. Twitter is probably one of my top news feeds and I curate who I follow and I'm constantly looking at different perspectives on Twitter. Same thing on LinkedIn. I use my LinkedIn pretty religiously as well. I listen to a good amount of podcasts, whether it be 20 minute VC, which is more venture capital or the startup podcast by Gimlet, which is more on the founder side. That's and then, and then I have, honestly, I have to, I have to read a lot of decks. Like I look at a lot of people's decks. And so a lot of my reading is just kind of because of my job, where I'm I'm looking at what are the ideas that founders are starting and am I reading industry reports to better understand those markets? So I don't do too much personal reading, which is why business school was great because it gave me the time to take a step back and, and read things outside of my industry. Right. Um, but I am, I went to a conference last week in California and was pretty fortunate to hear like Ariana Huffington, Doc Rivers, and a couple others speak in a pretty key, consistent theme was like making sure you read before you go to sleep, making sure you write down like what are the, the three to five things you want to happen tomorrow so that your, your subconscious can think about those things. So I'm very thoughtful in thinking about, you know, as you move forward and you and you scale up and you get to a higher level, like what are the things that you need to do outside of just the, the smaller tactical do my job? There's a lot more mental, emotional, spiritual things that enable the top executives to perform it the way they do
0: gotcha gotcha thank you for sharing that so we're going to go ahead and take a quick break how you like being on startup life so far Henri? good fun awesome stuff all right startup nation so i hope you're getting great value from Henri's content but we got to pay a few bills once again my name is dominic lawson this is the startup life podcast and it is powered by the binge podcast network Startup Nation, Kid and I, along with our daughter Zoe, have this thing called Target Fridays. If she's had a good week at school, we stop by the snack bar for popcorn and mermaid ices. Startup Nation, don't judge me until you've tried them. Those ices are really good. Anyways, we then head over to the toy section so my daughter can add to her LOL doll collection. My daughter is a pretty good student, so you can imagine that we have spent a small fortune on LOL dolls. However. I can take solace in the fact that Target makes it affordable to buy those LOL dolls and anything else we need as a family. That's because Target believes you deserve quality at an affordable price. And when you're entrepreneurs like us, That's extremely important. But great deals and quality products are not exclusive to the brick and mortar version of the retail store. Target.com has even more exclusive deals that you can appreciate. And when you spend over $35, shipping is free. And I know we all love free shipping. We love to purchase the amazing kids clothes for Zoe from the exclusive to Target Cat and Jack line when we go online. So the next time you listen to the show and you are reminded that you need something for your home, Start your target journey with the link in our show notes, where you can expect more and pay less. Startup Nation. After Facebook removed the ability to modify link previews last year, a lot of social media managers have resorted to image posts. You know, posts with the link in the description instead. However, click-through rates are 82% lower when using the image post versus a native link preview. So you're missing out on a lot of clicks for your website when sharing content. ShareKit brings back the ability to craft the perfect link preview. This is because you get to customize your link without getting IT involved. With ShareKit, digital marketing managers can customize link previews on platforms like Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Check out ShareKit at sharekit.io for higher click-through rate's and Cleaner posts. The link is there in the show notes. All right, started Nation, so let's continue. So, Ari, man, tell me how the squad came together, man. Tell about you, Jared, Brandon, and John, how y'all came together, man.
1: So, Brandon, Jared, and I, we met 2011. So, it's a, diversity, a diversity-focused program called MLT, Management Leadership for Tomorrow. It's a national program, usually adding 200 to 300 students get in. And they basically help minorities get internships in college at top, top companies. So we we did that program our junior years of college. We all went to different schools, but the the part of the program is there's three conferences where you meet. So I think one of them was at Target in Minneapolis. One was at Deloitte in Texas. And then one was at City in New York. And so that's a a good way for you to build a community. We all end up moving to New York after school, all working in investment banking. Brandon and I were roommates for four years. We both worked together at Bank of America for two years in investment banking, right. and then Jared and I worked together for two years in private equity. And then we were roommates for two years at Harvard Business School. So a lot of a lot of overlap between the three of us. Right. John on the other hand grew up in in Washington Heights, north of uh, Harlem, and he then started the first incubator in Harlem called Co Found Harlem, which is how we got connected. And so we were both doing similar work. There weren't many minorities north of Central Park in New York City doing things that were related to tech. And so we decided to partner. He joined our firm in January of 2017, and we've kind of we've all been brothers ever since. And so I think, you know, we're we're family first. And there's definitely things you have to think about if you're going to build build a business with your friends or your family, and you should be very conscious and aware of that. And what, do you, what are the processes in place? We, we have our media review next week. So what are you doing for feedback? What are you doing for transparency to make sure that your friendship and your brotherhood doesn't get impacted by the business, which it will at some point. It's just inevitable. But how do you not, how do you not lead to long-term destruction for, for your friendship or for business? Right? I think a, a lot of businesses fail because of the partnership.
0: Right. Thank you for sharing that. Really quickly, man, tell me about the ecosystem there in Harlem as far as entrepreneurs are Yes, I mean Harlem is is,
1: is becoming gentrified, unfortunately. Yeah. So ho- hopefully we can slow down that process, slow. Uh-huh. But this, you know, Google just opened an office, or they are next week—not an office, but like a a tech a tech shop—they're opening on one twenty fifth. There's a WeWork on one twenty sixth and Fifth Avenue. There's a couple of other incubators. They're so beginning to, to slowly see. Yeah, I mean, it's tough, right? It's never going to be like downtown because you've got Google and Chelsea and Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter and all the businesses, all the capital are downtown. But like you can at least create like a, a sub ecosystem uptown in, in Harlem as well. But it just takes time, right? And you need people like Google and we work to come in to really give people space to, to to innovate and to give people resources. And so I think slowly, you know, whether that be because it is becoming gentrified and why people are moving up here, maybe that's why it's happening faster. But it just it takes time. But you know that's something that we're very conscious of, and we're trying to make sure now that we're back from Boston that we, you know, host events and do things for for uptown New York because oftentimes they can feel like two different worlds.
0: Right. Yeah, because I see that you have like monthly networking gatherings, right?
1: Yeah, we did before school. With school, it was just too hard because we were traveling so much. But we definitely were looking to to bring those back the uptown meetups.
0: Okay. Cool deal. So I know one of your goals, man, is to invest in a thousand diverse entrepreneurs over the next 20 years, man. What are the, what are hitting those milestones? Why is that important to you?
1: Yeah. I mean, we wanted to, we wanted to set a goal that was crazy, right? There's a, there's a border between crazy and genius. And I think the irony is that as VC investors, you often are asking founders to do things that are crazy and go against human nature but sometimes you can be conservative yourself, and so it's like how do we push ourselves to do more the same way we're asking our founders to do more, right and how do we set a goal that is going to push us so we could set a hundred and that's easy we can easily achieve that but the, the thousand is and a thousand isn't like we want to invest in just a thousand founders. It's not like, hey, we want to give twenty five k checks to a thousand people because we could do that easily in twenty years if we're successful. It's like we want to give people millions of dollars right we want to be we want to actually have a real impact on the ecosystem and begin to provide significant capital so the number of founders is is important but it's not as important as the amount of capital because i think we have to shift from hey we're going to get people with 10,000 dollar checks to like we need to get people hundreds of thousands and millions of dollar checks and actually enable them to compete in a world where people are, are raising significant amounts of capital pretty easily and that that to me is it's what's
0: more important than just hey the thousand founders Gotcha. Thank you for sharing that. So I saw that you released a report, The Power 200. And I saw in that report, you know, it said that uh, 61% of the work is concentrated in like New York and San Francisco. I guess that's where most of the startups that are getting funded by VCs. How do we showcase more work from around the country, like maybe middle America as well? Yeah, I mean, so that that was in line with where
1: the VC market is. Roughly two-thirds come from New York region and SF region. So I think that made made sense to me and but i think what also proves is there's still a third that are outside of those two cities right so though there are two-thirds there and and even when i think about my business school classmates probably two-thirds of my classmates moved to new york or san francisco because that's that's just where the, the firms are and the talent's going but there still is a lot of talent outside of those regions now for long term like i think it'll be a very very long time before the tier two cities can can compete with with the valley right even even new york barely is scraping what the Valley does. It's because there's so much ingrained there, but you can create many ecosystems and it requires a lot of players. You need co-working space. You need incubators. You need accelerators. You need tech firms that can provide the talent. You need investors that can provide the capital. You need founders that can create the ideas. And so it's not just a one thing you you do need to be conscious of. And New York has been very conscious of that in order to compete with the Valley where there's a New York EDC, which is the Economic Development Center, and they're very focused on, hey, how do we begin to either create lower taxes for tech firms or provide grants so that people can try to create incubators or accelerators or you know reduce the taxes on these entities so that we can try to create this New York ecosystem. So you need private and public to really make it happen at scale. And you're kind of seeing that some places like Detroit with Dan Gilbert and the work he's doing, or Steve Case in Ohio with the Rise of the Rest Fund, he's trying to go all across the, of America. But I think to do it in a in a city and Atlanta is beginning to do that, particularly for black tech. You see like Tristan Walker moved to his company down there and a number of people have left left the Valley to go to Atlanta because it just want cheaper to hire people, cheaper to live. So I think it'll it will slowly happen, but a long way away from Atlanta competing with the Valley. But I think you'll still have nice micro ecosystems in these cities. But it takes time, right? I mean the Valley's been around for thirty plus years. And there's a reason it is what it is. And so I think places like New York and Boston will be the next Meccas. And then after that, Chicago, Atlanta, Austin, and then like the tier three, tier four, you're talking Detroit, Columbus, Baltimore's of the world. It just takes a long time to get to that tier two, tier one level.
0: Gotcha. Thank you for sharing that. And I actually spoke with uh, Todd Palmer, who's a uh, fellow Detroit native, as well. And he talked about the work that Dan Gilbert is doing there in Detroit and stuff like that. But I also appreciate the value you gave in that answer. because was given the blueprints of how other cities like a Detroit and Atlanta or a Cleveland or other places in middle America can kind of get to that point. Maybe not necessarily to the maturation of a, of a Silicon Valley, but definitely in that direction. So I appreciate that answer for sure. I want to ask you this, man. What's the one thing you wish you would have known before you started Harlem Capital Partners? <laughs> Man, I mean, there's been so
1: many, so many learnings that it's hard. I mean, it's like, we're basically a startup, right? We've been doing this for three and a half years. We, we finally, we finally raised a fund. We put our own money to work before we were able to get other people's, which is no different than a startup founder. You got to, you got to put your money where your mouth is. Sure. And like, it just takes, it just takes a long time. Like we've been building this for three and a half years, like grinding while we were working in private equity, which is not a easy job while we were, in business school, which is very time consuming academically and socially, right? right? And, and so I think it's just like, it's, it's a long grind. It takes time. I think people, particularly millennials, like we want things so quick and, and now it feels like everything's blowing up because we got all these awards and all the press, but it's like, there is a lot of like, no press, no awards, super late nights before that happen. And once it happens, it becomes a spiral, right? Because people want to be around winners. Right. So all of a sudden people started coming out of the woodworks and, you know, reaching out to you, wanting to help you. But like, that's not the case until you kind of get that recognition. And so I think like, I just, I, I mean, we didn't start this with the goal of raising a fund. I had no idea we would be doing this. We didn't start this with the goal of investing only in minorities. Like we started with the goal of let's like, invest our own money and just learn from the experience and make money. Right. And then slowly pivot over time to, hey, we actually want to focus investing our money in our communities. And we want to focus on our communities within venture capital because we think that venture capital is a way to, to lead to scalability quickly and to create wealth, right? Because there's a big wealth gap in this country. And the, a big portion of that is because we don't have any equity or ownership and venture capital enables us to have equity ownership in our businesses. So, yeah, just like you, you just don't know what you don't know. Right. And that's, and that's okay. And the journey takes a really long time. And you, you think about the people who I respect, the Warren Buffetts, I mean, he became a billionaire in, in his mid fifties, you know, a number, a number of people, uh, same thing. became you know, really successful late forties, late fifties. And we look at like fortune 500 CEOs, average fortune 500 CEOs is 20 plus years into the career. And I think a lot of us are just so into the, like, we're so driven by this. Like, Oh, I want to be my own boss. And I want to have my own flexibility. I want to be a millionaire by 30 or 35. It's just, like, that's just not the reality. Right. right? Like the reality is it's really hard, right? The top, in New York, I think it's $400,000. So you want to be a millionaire. You want to be the top 0.01% in one of the most competitive, hardworking cities in the world. I guess it's not, it's not easy. Not saying that we can't do it, because I fully believe we will do it. Right. But I think it's, I think it's just like, you have to also have an appreciation for the level of difficulty, but at the same time, not be like, this is so difficult. I can't achieve it right and there is there's beauty to ignorance and there's beauty to naiveness and I've learned to balance taking advice from people because people only give your advice as far as they've gone right and as people of color there are only so many people who have gone as far as I want to go right and that's just that's just the reality and it's not to say that what you're doing you have not been successful and you've not achieved but that's just not what I want like for me like being a millionaire and, and working for a company and being the head of my group doesn't that's not what to me success is. Gotcha. right success is a long long-term legacy, creating long-term wealth creation which is more than just making a million dollars to help my family. That's great for my family. That's great for me. That doesn't change the community. right You got to make a lot more money so you can do things that Robert Smith did with Morehouse to be able to have that 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 leverage that Warren Buffett and Bill Gates do. And so I think it's like also understanding, who do I take advice from? Who do I not take advice from? And one of my weaknesses is I'm stubborn and one of my greatest strengths is that I'm stubborn. But uh, I think a lot of I think a lot of people realize that and there's no way that Elon Musk listens to half the things that people told him. That's true. He wouldn't be he wouldn't be where he is if he did because he, he is crazy and he sounds crazy. Right? Like right. and I think that's just that's just the power the power of being so confident in your own thoughts that you're able to still take some advice. But at the same time, still believe in your own vision and thoughts, regardless of what people tell you.
0: Gotcha. I appreciate all of that. And I definitely appreciate the part where you talk about, you know, not saying that it, you can't do it, but necessarily understand the reality of it all and the competitive nature, uh, not just New York City, but in, the, you know, in America as well. But, so I appreciate that answer for sure. Let me ask you this, man. Quick question. You know, what is the next big industry you think? You know, we talk about healthcare, real estate, tech. But what do you think is the next big industry that, you know, the venture capital community be kind of salivating over the next 10 years?
1: Yeah, I mean, so the next 10 years, people are already beginning to invest, I think, in the industries that are going to change the world. So blockchain, I think, will change the world. Nobody understands how only a few investors are investing in it. AI will change the world. Most people don't know what the heck AI is. And a lot of investors have no idea, but we know in general that having computers that can eventually do what humans do will change the world and not just from a manufacturing standpoint, because that's kind of being done already in a lot of car and other auto, but like at a real thinking capacity. And it may even change the investor world, right? If if you can create computer systems that can really think... And people are trying to do this on on the public side, but on the private side. There hasn't been, you know, the AI that's used, like the quantum computers that are used for stock trading have not been done on the private side. So that may change our jobs, right, in the next 10 years. Right. And, you know, another big one is obviously autonomous vehicles. Some people think that's going to happen in 10 years. Some don't think it's going to happen in 10 years. But I think any, any autonomous transportation, whether it be the Hyperloop for Elon Musk or whether it be the trucking industry, which I think is where autonomous vehicles will first really hit mass market will be, on the B2B trucking side versus on the consumer side for cars, that's going to dramatically change. I mean, the the number one job in the majority of U.S. states is truckers, right? I want to say 35 to 40 states, the number one job is trucking industry. So you're talking a massive displacement of jobs, a massive displacement of jobs that don't require higher education. And that's on the trucking side. Then let's say 10 to 15 years out, you move to autonomous vehicles on the consumer side. Probably one of the fastest growing jobs has been, has been on-demand Ubers and Lyfts of the world. So then you're displacing all of those people, whether it be their full-time jobs or their part-time jobs. And so you're going to have massive job displacement, and the government has to understand what do you have to do to provide these jobs to people who aren't getting educated? Because, because long, my, my, another thing that's in to is education, like right? long-term, I do not think college is going to be relevant in the United States or in the world globally. Gotcha. Right, And so it's it's really going to be about what are the trades you're going to do. And similar in Europe, you kind of choose your major before college. Same in China, you know, similar thing. You kind of test for certain industries. If you want to be a lawyer, you start that process early on. And I, I just don't – college is beneficial from a networking perspective and from a growth development perspective and from prestige, right? But it doesn't really – give you a lot of the tools that you need in this world. I was an econ major. I barely use my, at all, Use my economics major in what I do. But it was like four years for me to kind of grow up, right, and to just become become an adult. But are there ways that you can do that without having to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars and take four years of your life? I think that will shift. And as that shifts, the government has to think about, okay, the jobs getting displaced don't require college education. College education is shifting. There's going to be a new education level. The government's going to have to be a part of that shift and incentivize companies to say, hey, either we give you tax incentives to retrain your employees or whatever it is, but there's going to be a massive reshift of the skill set in this country and globally in the world as you move to a more technologically savvy world and as you move to a lower educated world as well.
0: Gotcha. Thank you for sharing that. And I actually agree with you about college. I think college is becoming, like you kind of said, it's a great place for networking, but I think it's also a place for not necessarily to use what you the degree that you can, but it teaches you how to learn on a different level. But I, I definitely agree with you about the change of landscape of education in that regard for sure. Thank you for sharing that. Second to last question, because I know you want to go go ahead and get some lunch, man. Thank you so much for coming on the show. All entrepreneurs, I think, may have a superpower. What's yours?
1: My superpower is my ability to to network extremely effectively. Mm -hmm. So I don't don't know what superhero that would be. Maybe it's like Batman at his cocktail parties or something. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I've just, I've always, always, I'm an only child. So I've always looked to other people to like be my family and friends. And I just, I love networking and I I know how to do it very efficiently. And I'm very meticulous about it. I'm very thoughtful when I think about, you know, who are the people I want to talk to. I try to wish people happy birthdays. I try to, you know, be on LinkedIn and Facebook. I check Facebook every night, every night to see whose birthday it is. Is there anybody that needs a text message or message? Like all those little things. I think I heard a talk last week by a partner at First Round Capital, which is one of the top VC investors. And he was like, if you if you do what you say you're going to do, you'll be top decile. If you reply to people's emails, you'll be top decile. If you follow up with people who give you introductions or whatever it may be, so somebody like says, "Hey, here's an introduction." You say, "Hey, we reach back out and let them know, like this is this is what happened. Like, thank you for the introduction. Here's an update. You'll be top decile, right?" And so all those things, like I try to be top decile, so then I'm top .01 percent across all of them. Because the reality is, the majority of things in this in this world is a people's business. Like during the modeling and doing the work and all that stuff that stuff you you you, that's replicable right and eventually it will be it'll be run by it'll be run by machines Mm -hmm. um so like you have to have something about you as a person that is going to be differentiated factor and so i just i try to reply to all my emails i try to make sure i communicate with people and outreach i i'm always i work a lot but i also am very social i work hard to play harder like I try to organize events for my business school classmates, for my college classmates, whoever it may be, like just to bring people together um, in a world where it's so busy, it's really hard to kind of meet people one-on-one, right? We all have tons of friends and acquaintances. And so how do you bring a bunch of people at once so you can at least see a lot of people at one given time and try to have that touch point? And that's just something that I thrive on. And, you know, others are complete opposite. Like Jared, my partner, doesn't like that. He's more smaller group of people and that's who he is. And, and, and I think that's, and that's okay. Right. But I thrive on large networks and not just large networks where you go and you get a bunch of business cards. like, can you actually execute on maintaining those relationships? And people just don't, I mean, you can have a billionaire present to a room and say, Hey, like, we, we were at a conference last week. Arianna Huffington gave us her email address while she was on stage, probably like two of us emailed her. Mm. right it's just it's like that and you think like oh i don't want to just disturb her whatever it may be was well, like well she gave her email just for a reason <laughs> like, exactly right so and, and you hear that stuff all the time people share that story all the time but it doesn't matter how many times people hear it, they don't know how to execute on it right it's not it's not easy networking to full-time job maintaining relationships with a full-time job mm. and you have to be very methodical you have to be very
0: methodical about it Mm, that's so important. I hope you caught that startup year. networking and maintaining relationships is a full time job. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate that one, man. So, look, man, before I ask my last question, man, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the Startup Life podcast, powered by the Bench Podcast Network. You gave amazing value, just like that last amazing nugget you just gave, man. But now I want to give the microphone over to you because there's a startup founder who's uh you know either on the ropes, they're stuck in their business. Or there's one that's just afraid to jump off that cliff and start their business, man. Give them some words of motivation today.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you're if you're a founder that that's on their ropes, like I think I think you have to do this anyway. But like you should you should write down hopefully before you wrote down why you wanted to start this business, what your vision was, and you know I'm a firm believer that you should start a startup because you want to change the world, and not to be a lot of people start startups because they want to be their own boss, they want to have more flexibility, want to make more money. But the reality is is you're not going to be your own boss if you're successful because you're going to have to raise money from VC investors. You're not going to, you definitely, if you're a good startup founder, you're not going to work less hours unless you were like an investment banking before like me. And you're not going to most likely make more money, right? Because most startups fail. So you'll most likely make less money than a corporate job. So You shouldn't do it for those reasons. So if you really wrote down why you want to do what you want to do, if you didn't write write it down and now you're at the point where you may fail, just like try to remind yourself and ask yourself this question. What was the problem? I was trying to solve. Why was I passionate about this problem? Why do I believe I'm the person to solve this problem? What has been the things that have improved as I've tried to solve this problem that are going to give me the space to keep going? If you haven't started, you know, your, your startup yet and you're looking to get in, then, you know, you ask yourself those same questions as well, like, what, what's something I'm super passionate about? Oftentimes, it's, it's things that come naturally. You're usually not sitting in a room trying to figure out ideas to start a business. There are some people who are like that who just like to solve problems. But most people are solving their own problems or people around them problems that kind of come to their mind. And then we get into really just thing and, and think about, I think John Henry, one of my partners, you know, said it well when he, when he decided to start his business, he was, there was too much of an opportunity cost when he was at the, his current position to start what he wanted to do, right? And it was the same for us. We had been, we started Harlem Capital while we were in private equity. We did it while we were in business school. And when we got to that point where we said, hey, are we going to recruit? to intern and go back into private equity or work at a venture capital firm after Harvard Business School and make a lot more money than we are now and pay off some of our debt. And it became like, hey, when we were in private equity, we were spending hours on this every night. When we were in business school, we were spending 60, 70 hours a week traveling, four days a week. Like, it's too expensive for me to go continue doing this while I work for somebody else, right? It got, and, and that took time. I, I don't, I think, you know, some people are believers like, oh, you're not a real founder unless you're full-time and you quit like, That that's BS in my view. Like most people thought, we were full time. The past two and a half years, we got a a shit ton done. The past two and a half years being part time, because you can do it. And when people have forty hour jobs a week, there are a lot more hours in the week. There's 127 hours. You got, you know, you got 87 more hours to do work, right? And so I don't think you have to quit right away. I think you build something while somebody else is paying you, and then eventually you get to the point where you realize that you you can't you can't keep sacrificing anymore, and you'll feel it in your gut. You'll know like this. Like, I'm, I can't not do this anymore. And for us, it was like, I can't leave business school and go work for another firm and keep doing this on the side anymore. The problem is too, it's too important. It's too big. I'm too good at what I'm doing. I love what I'm doing too much. Like, I'm going to make less money. I'm going to take the rest. And I'm going to do this on my own because I've been doing this for 60, 70 hours a week anyway. So clearly, this is like what I want to do and what I was, you know, meant to do. I think that, that will hit you and you'll know, and it takes time. It doesn't have to be like, oh, I broke down an idea, got to quit my job. It's like, no, like spend 10 hours a week, right? And then 20 and then 30 and then 40. And then you realize like, crap, like I don't even, I don't have a life anymore. I got to quit work and I got to go do this full time.
0: Thank you so much. And Startup Nation, I think I just heard a mic drop after that fire he just spit, man. So that's going to wrap up <laughs> of the Startup Life podcast. Did you enjoy being on the show, my man? I did. Thanks for having me. Oh, no worries, man. All right, Startup Nation. So here's my final take. Unri gave us amazing value about the world of venture capitalists and how the process works. Look, I know a lot of startup founders out there are, are not sure how to get funding in this, that, and the other. And you're looking to see if, if venture capitalists is for you. But Henri kind of shows you that, like, look, there are some businesses that you know that are are prime right for venture capitalists, and maybe there's some that aren't, or, or maybe it's just a point where where you are your business isn't right for venture capital investing just yet. But he gave us all of that value, and I'm so glad that he gave it to us. But also, Startup Nation, he really stressed the point of not being afraid of debt. I know uh, a lot of us. I know I'm an African American, and, and you know Henri was talking about that, you know, his his background and stuff like that. Uh, that you know, you, you shouldn't be afraid of debt. Debt is something that you. can't. Can leverage, and I'm so glad that he said that because look, it's okay to have a partner. It's okay to sell some equity in your company because the thing is, is that it's better to have 10% of a billion-dollar business than 100% of a non-revenue-generating business. And Henri really did stress that point. But also, I love Henri's fortitude and his willingness to succeed i think that's something we all can learn from startup nation and also just on a quick note this episode was recorded a while back and since then harlem capital has been doing amazing things one of those things is that they've been upgraded from an angel syndicate to a full-fledged venture capital fund closing its debut effort on an oversubscribed $40.3 million. And so Startup Nation, I am just so excited for Henri and John Henry and Brandon and everybody at Harlem Capital Partners about the growth there, about the experience. And I can't wait to see the things that they do in the years to come. If you want to let us know what you think about our show, have an idea for a show topic or like to advertise on our show, send us a message on the Startup Life podcast Facebook page. And while you are there, like and follow our page as well. It's a great way for us to engage with you, Nation, and really grow our community. The link is there in the show notes. Subscribe to the show as it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, And hey, if you have an idea, be about that life, the startup life.